conversation you are about to hear was recorded in January 2020, and this between myself and two Christians on the subject of miracles. The Christians concerned are Robert L. White, who you will have heard on a recent episode, and Dale Glover, who some listeners will know from the Skeptics and Seekers podcast. Robert and Dale have their own podcasts, and this episode has already featured on those podcasts. For this version of the conversation, I have edited heavily in order to insert my own extra thoughts and content. It will be obvious where I have added in extra content. What I have cut is the individual introductions we each gave, and chunks of the longer dialogue where points have already been made. If you wish to listen to the full conversation so that you can hear what has been cut, there are links to Roberts and Dale's episodes in the show notes. We'll start right into the the first major section, the notion of prior probability. So I'm sort of weird and I have this notion of start trying your best to start with what I call the default prior probability or the blank slate and, and recognizing that when you're approaching a debate on an issue that where people have contradicting views, as much as is possible, I think it's best to start as pure agnostic. You know, you, you have no evidence or, or notion one way or the other as to which side is right. Only then you bring in, well, here are my positive reasons to think this proposition is true. The other side, they, they bear a burden of proof in bringing in evidence to say, I think this proposition is probably false. So this is the issue that Matthew takes issue with, is that, well, I'll, I'll let him explain why he takes issue with that. But I, I think for conversational reasons, it's, it's very helpful to understand You start as a blank slate and you're saying, okay, someone's claiming miracles are possible or plausible. Okay, what are your reasons for making that claim? You bear the burden of proof on that end. Likewise, if an atheist says, no, miracles are implausible or they're, they're probably not possible or something like that, then that's a claim on their part and they bear the burden of proof. And me as blank slate guy, I can look at both sides and evaluate the the evidence for and against, and then come to my decision. So yeah, Matt, I'll, I'll turn it to you. The reason I don't like it and I have issue with it is, first of all, I appreciate what it is that you're trying to do with that. So I'm not trying to argue against that. I've got multiple problems. One of them is the, the blank slate scenario practically can't exist because nobody arrives at a claim with having no knowledge or even no biases. So the the blank slate scenario, to all practical purposes, uh, simply can't exist. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to eliminate incorrect knowledge or biases. I mean, that's part of the scientific process, after all, to eliminate anything that's biased or invalid. So I, I certainly appreciate what is trying to be achieved. I, I'm just not convinced that the, the blank slate is the way to go about it. And the other bit I have an issue with is the assignment of burden of proof. It, I, I take a very different approach because what I feel about the blank slate idea and uh, the way you've uh, framed it, uh, the blank slate seems to, and you, you have to correct me if I've misunderstood your intentions here, uh, the blank slate sounds to me like it's focusing on the claim and then trying to work backwards and unpick from the claim. The way I would rather approach it is the claim, regardless of what the claim is, at this moment in time is is less important than the evidence that we've got to review. So let's forget the claims and take a look at the evidence, assess the evidence that we've got available to us, bring it all. And then from the evidence, let's try and work out what is the most likely true thing that explains 
or the evidence. And it'll be at that point that you then start coming up with a claim. And rather than talk about who has the burden of proof of the claim, you test the claims against the evidence and see which one comes out with the best explanation. That's kind of the issues that I have with the blank slate and then deciding who's got a burden of proof. One analogy I like to use is, and this is partly because I tend to be a bit of a pragmatic epistemologist, I would say, is I like picturing you waking up from a coma with amnesia about essentially everything except the English language and the rules of logic, since that's basically built into your brain, you can't really think without the rules of logic. That is sort of, to me, a helpful way of like, okay, what it, what is a blank slate? And it's like, okay, well, let's say, just let's try to reset things. You you wake up in the hospital, you really don't know anything. You just see things happening like a two-year-old does, except you do have a fully developed brain, and then you go from there. If I were a skeptic, I might very quickly move on to a naturalistic bias. And I mean, when I say bias, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. A naturalistic default or something. There's still a step to move to that. So that is, to me, another way that I think is helpful of thinking of a blank slate, because it is how we experience life individually, which is through our own brains and waking up each day and experiencing data out in the world. Actually, what Matthew described, I think Mary's well with the way you described a blank slate, Dale. Matthew, to me, it sounded like he was just adding on, look at the data first and then move to the claim, which I love. That In fact, that the big part of what I'm going to be talking about today is don't let the claim that you want to make cook the books. So kind of take a survey of the data and then make a claim. And then I think to marry that with Dale, claim should be based on a blank slate. So you got the data, your blank slate, and then arguments you move on from there. So I feel like at this point, I can agree with both you guys. As much as possible, we should start with a blank slate and start with the data as well. So yeah, I, I think your two ideas can go well together as, as you've stated them so far. I think you guys said it well. So, so in the first place, let me fully acknowledge on a practical level, it's impossible to truly be a blank slate. There's always going to be presuppositions that are built in. And when you're having a dialogue, so things like the laws of logic, all three of us kind of, ex I already know in advance, all three of us accept that. So it's kind of a given. So, okay, I, I don't need to argue that the laws of logic are true or something like that, or, you know, the correspondence theory of truth. So I'm, I'm assuming all three of us would accept that. So I, I don't need to to get into that. But there, there are people out there that might not grant it. So there, there are one of my listeners, Travis R, who's very intelligent and has very thoughtful comments to, to offer. He would deny the correspondence theory of truth. Uh, he believes in the coherence theory of truth. So, you know, if you're starting as a blank slate, you, you would realize, okay, there's a, a controversial thing. I need to take it back a step and try to address the, the issue of the theory of truth or the issue that the laws of logic are true. In a conversation for, for practicality purposes, I think between the three of us, we accept some of these presuppositions. It's better to say, start as a blank slate as, as much as is possible or as practical for the for the sake of argument. It's more just to, to get that attitude of realizing, okay, what does this evidence assert uh, to prove and does it prove it or not and that sort of thing. So in terms of the burden of proof issue for, for you here, Matt, you would agree with me that whoever makes a claim or submits evidence in and support of a claim bears a burden of proof. Like that basic statement is correct, right? Yeah, we're, we're okay there. 
Robert, you're cool with that yes. as well? So maybe try thinking of it this way. I gave various examples. So when it comes to the possibility of miracles or the equal possibility of miracles, let, let's start with this. Everyone gets on the question of does God act, actually exist, factually exist or not? I think you would both agree that the default state is true. We, we don't have a slanting of starting out before looking at any evidence that, no, it's 60% probable that God exists or 60% probable that God doesn't exist. No, we, we are, as much as possible, blank slate, and then we're presented with reasons one way or the other to think that God actually exists or actually doesn't exist. Is that is that fair enough for you guys? I'm not I, sure. Uh, Could you rephrase it? On the proposition that God exists, we would start uh, in the position of, I don't know, it's it's zero percent proven until if you're gonna tell me God does exist, then present to me reasons and I'll assess those in favor of that proposition. On the same side, if the atheist comes to me and says, No, actually God doesn't exist, then I would say to the atheist, Okay, great, present to me your reasons why you think God doesn't exist, and I'll decide based on that. Does that make sense, or Okay, yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. So um I'm going to do an odd thing and dispute this a little bit as a oh. Christian. <laughs> so I actually talked about this, I believe, I have a series of posts on the God delusion, and I go into this on one of my posts a little bit more in detail. But I really struggled with this question because it kind of hurts our brain when we get down to the most basic thing of what exists, because you could then say, is it 50-50 odds that the flying spaghetti monster exists? And I'm sympathetic with the skeptic, who says that seems ridiculous. The reason why it seems ridiculous is because it's completely ad hoc. You're just creating a monster and then saying, well, from a blank slate, is it 50-50% chance? Now, technically, if you know absolutely zero about the known universe, you have to start with 50-50 because you know absolutely nothing but that's really honestly it's not even worth putting a probability then because it's so ad hoc i think our intuition tells us it's less than 50 50 if it's 50 50 and a rock monster is the creator is also 50 50 how can all these monsters be 50 <laughs> you know it starts to feel ad hoc and it goes against our intuition so the way i ended up going forward with this in my blog i think is you almost can't assign probabilities when you have absolutely zero information like a probability is just a almost a random number at that point and this is where maybe i'm more with uh, what matthew said earlier you start with data because we all do start with data like we're humans and we've been alive by the time we start questioning these things and then you look at kind of the live options for explanation and then you compare explanations that it doesn't totally go against what you're saying dale with yeah. with god because i think all three of us know some of the things that are put forward of why God would be an explanation and why, let's say, materialistic processes could be a full explanation for things. So I think we can kind of bootstrap to the level you're talking about, Dale, where it's like, okay, we know why people have posited God as an explanation and why people have posited materialistic, naturalistic processes purely as explanation. So let's start 50-50 there and then argue and i think that is fair i don't know if matthew would agree with that but i think that that's fair i can accept that certainly at, at, at this point anyway and i'm glad you brought up the flying spaghetti monster i was going to go my favorite is the invisible pink unicorn but yeah uh, i either works the issue i have with the 
assigning of burden of proof is I think it distracts from the point of having the conversation. This is something I've experienced a few times on the uh, Unbelievable Facebook group. I've been involved in all sorts of conversations there over the last few years and the burden of proof thing gets thrown out uh, as a trap. This is why I object to the use of the burden of proof and I'll use the uh, flying spaghetti monster as Robert brought that up. If I say I've got the flying spaghetti monster trapped in my spare room next door and you guys say okay well you've made a claim you have a burden of proof and so i give you all my reasons and then you you guys say well actually no we don't believe you you're you're lying to us and i go ha ha now you guys have got a burden of proof and if you fail to meet that burden to my satisfaction i can then go de facto you've failed to meet your burden of proof to show that I don't have the flying spaghetti monster in my bedroom. Therefore, I have the flying spaghetti monster in my bedroom. And I think that deceptive flip, and that's how it feels. And I, I see that quite a lot. And that genuinely doesn't help achieve any kind of uh, mutual re respect or agreement in any conversation. So that's why I like to resist uh, assignment of burden of proof in conversations like this. Let me ask if this, I think this can help sidestep the difficulties of burden of proof and the whole idea of burden of proof in a sense is if you frame it like this, there is a lot of data out in the world. There is existence, there is morals or the perception of morals, there is consciousness, whatever. There, there's a lot of data. We have that data. What is the best explanation? And I don't think anyone can say that any individual gets to avoid that question. Like each individual has to argue what is the best explanation for that data. And if you say there is no explanation, then you're just kind of that, I guess that's utter agnosticism or I mean, a very weak position, like you're just you're claiming to have no worldview at all. So what is the best explanation for the data? And it seems obvious everyone has that burden to answer that question. And then you can start with a fresh table and put ideas on that table. Yeah, yeah that can work better. Pretty much on the same page. It, it's it's not a fundamental difference like uh obviously practically speaking i'm on your guys side with things like this flying spaghetti monster and that sort of thing my approach here with this whole default thing it, it's to point out that both sides if they make claims bear this burden of proof and that that's not a tactic that this, this is important to, to get right because if if you make a claim god doesn't exist or the flying spaghetti monster doesn't exist because and then and then robert points out well here's the reason it's ad hoc and that makes right. ad hoc hypotheses are improbable so so that would be what i call a post prior pro probability thing you, you've given me a reason to think it's improbable but the, the whole point of the default thing is well maybe this assumed reason even if it's correct your interlocutor doesn't necessarily have that you know sometimes we just assume the reasons and then we end up talking past each other. If we don't assume those, then you'll realize, okay, he doesn't believe that the flying spaghetti monster is ad hoc. So then you can, okay, we got to discuss that and prove that. So, so that's that's the whole reason I use this as sort of a, a tactic to make us slow down and realize maybe you've got a reason of naturalism. You think naturalism is true. Well, me and Robert are not going to share that starting assumption. So if you're going to claim naturalism is true, therefore miracles are probably impossible or or implausible or something like that then you need to establish that because that is a claim on your end and if you fail to meet that claim that doesn't prove the op oh well then that proves miracles are possible or are plausible or or actually happen or something like that but it just means okay we're back to that starting thing and now it's on you mr theist to present some positive 
warrant or reason to think this is true. So, yeah, that that's really what this whole thing is about. And yeah, it sounds like you guys are on board with me in principle. It's just this isn't the way it goes in practicality, right? We we have these assumptions where we just start with certain facts and that sort of thing. Would that be fair? Yeah, it sounds great to me. I think, though, if I'm having a dialogue with someone and we're getting into the nitty gritty and we're completely disagreeing on what the conclusion of the evidence that we see is, I think battling over who has a burden of proof for what doesn't help that that conversation move on. And I think that's my issue. Mm. Uh, it creates an embattlement rather than a mutual uh, attempt at finding what's true. So I would rather, instead of someone say to me, you've got a burden of proof, now meet it. I would rather they actually came up to me and said, right, okay, well, let's examine the data that you feel is important and try and understand why you're coming to the conclusion that you're going to. I'd rather somebody in that situation makes an effort to understand my position because that will also motivate me to want to understand theirs rather than standing it with battle lines drawn opposed to each other declaring that the other one hasn't met their burden that's one of my other issues uh, with it is it creates embattlement and i don't want embattlement you know i want a mutual meeting of minds with an attempt to try to find what the data really does say because it might turn out that, that both people are wrong and it's only by yeah. getting together and working through the data that they get to the right answer it could, and perhaps it often does lead to this feeling of embattlement or superiority, like, hey, you made a claim, prove it, aha, you can't even prove it. But I do think it's possible to do what you're saying and keep in mind this burden of proof. I see it as sort of a helpful heuristic, and it's going to be helpful when we get to our next section. I'd like to add some clarification here on Dale's 50-50 position and also on burden of proof and why Christians need to be very careful about how they apply these. This is a position where I have disagreed very strongly with Dale and other Christians. First on the 50-50 situation. This is intended to be an unbiased position, where a proposition is neither accepted nor rejected, but is taken to be equally true or false, given no additional information. Hence, 50-50. It sounds reasonable, but it's what happens next where things get messy and a little bit ugly. How is evidence best balanced, and is the failure of evidence on one side the equivalent of evidence for the other? This is best explained using an example from a recent interaction I had with Christians in the Facebook group. In response to a comment in the group, I accepted the definition that being atheist meant I believed there was no God. I was then challenged to present evidence for my position that there was no God, because I now had made a claim and I needed to support that with evidence. This is the burden of proof position that you've just heard Dale, Robert and myself discuss. My response to this challenge is that my evidence that there is no God is the lack of evidence presented by Christians for their God. If the Christian can't present evidence for their God that I can replicate, then I am justified in not only rejecting the notion of a god, but I am also justified in using that failure as evidence for there being no god. Predictably, the Christians in this Facebook group didn't like that response, and so I had a variety of responses, from fallacy calling to intelligence insults. Dale has also objected to this response, and this has been where we have vociferously disagreed in the past. 
I take a very hard line here, because some Christians, Dale included, make a fundamental error by thinking that the two positions are equivalent. This is what I tried to explain when talking about the flying spaghetti monster in the section you just heard. A Christian says that their God exists, and I say I need to see evidence for their God. When their evidence doesn't arrive, I say that it's evidence their God does not exist. Their lack of evidence is evidence of lack. The typical Christian response is to claim that my lack of evidence that there is no God means their God exists. The trick that Christians are playing here is to define their God as being untestable, thereby making it impossible to accept any test which would either confirm or negate the existence of their God. This is a very significant issue because burden of proof discussions only work when there is a methodology by which the proposition can be tested. But Christians don't allow that methodology to exist. They say we can't test for God, which means any discussion about burden of proof with respect to God is utterly pointless. Christians really do want to eat their cake and have it too. This is important to bear in mind as the conversation progresses and we get into the detail of miracles. What are some of your reasons that you claim prove that miracles are implausible? And realizing you're making the claim, so you've got to do the work here to convince us. And then vice versa, that on the same side, when I present my case or when Robert presents his case, well, here are two or three reasons why we think miracles are plausible. And even bearing in mind this burden of proof, and that, that serves as a helpful heuristic or a helpful way to understand, I'm the one making the claim, am I doing enough to establish my claim? And vice versa, when they're making the claim, are they establishing to me? So I actually see it as, as helpful. If you see it in that light, could you see it as useful then, Matt? Potentially, uh, in that context, it, it's just that, you know, my past experience of having bad experiences on, on forums, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of puts me off that kind of language. That's part of my issue. But yeah, I understand what it is that you're trying to say. I accept that. The funny thing about your SNS uh, podcast is, it, to me, it seemed clear, Dale, that you thought this was going to be like an introductory thing that everyone was going to move on quickly from. And it ended up going on forever. (laughs) (laughs) This this is, uh, which which one are you talking about? Is this the one with all four of us in it? Yeah, that was the four of us one, yeah. Yeah, The the bad one, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You guys still had useful discussion. Don't don't be too hard on yourselves. You, You still got to some good points. Awesome. Okay, cool. We we just came away a little bit dirty. That was all. (laughs) Yeah, it it happens. We're all friends at the end of the day. So what are some of the reasons to think that miracles are equally possible or probably not equally possible or improbable or whatever? And in this section, I want to start with Matthew having the the fun burden of proof, not the embattlement. Before I get there, there there was an issue that I know puts you off, and and, and I'm not going to go into too much detail. I just want to sort of ask and get your take on it. So in, in the first place, one of the reasons that some skeptics have provided to think that miracles are probably impossible or implausible, whatever you want to say, is, is due to the issue of scientism. And I know that you take extreme issue to, to the use of that word. Why is that, Matt? Why, why do you take such extreme issue to this word? When it's thrown about it's often used as a blanket insult possibly to just outright dismiss what it is that the other person's saying and to give an excuse not to pay any attention to any of the detail that they're saying 
And again, this is some, uh, something that I have experienced when trying to have an online conversation. And uh, I give a reason, they'll say, oh, well, that's just scientism, poof. And that's it. And absolutely no attention has been made to want to positively interact with what it is that I'm trying to say and, and have a dialogue o over what it is that my position is. So it's basically partly the same uh, issue that I have with the, the assignments of burden of proof is it, it it's used almost as a weapon. And that's the issue that I have with it. It also depends on what definition, because it turns out there seems to be several definitions. Often when it's thrown out uh, in the way that I'm saying it, it's like they're saying to me, well, you've got this uh, firm belief that uh, only science can answer any question ever. So you're clearly being being irrational. And that's not a, a position that uh, I will accept that I hold. So again, in that context, uh, throwing it, it at me and dismissing what I say under the banner of scientism both robs the two of us of having a meaningful conversation and uh, attaches a label to me that I, I don't accept. So that's the issue that I have with that being thrown about. I mean, there are other lighter versions of scientism, which I'm quite quite happy to accept, but I don't really want to go into a uh, a drawn-out conversation on the different meanings of, of, of scientism, but so, but that's the issue that I have with the word. Gotcha. Okay, and and yeah, don't worry. This is just sort of a, a side thing. So I wanted to to get your take on this. So just as a quick question, then you would be fine with considering yourself an advocate of a weaker version of of scientism in, in terms of maybe how I defined it in in the blog post that we did in the show. W would you be fine if there is no associated Ad, you know, it's not being used as an ad hominem, but a, a helpful label that describes, hey, look, the weak scientism, it's the view that says there may be some minimal truths that can have positive epistemic status without the support of science, but science is still the most valuable, serious, and authoritative sector of human reasoning and learning. This is what this word means. If you believe it, you can take it, and then we can have a discussion about, well, here are some things about it, like... Would that be offensive to you? If it's no, it's not offensive. Those aren't the exact words that I would use, but it, it, it's close enough. I would probably say something along the lines of scientism holds that at this moment, science is the best tool that we currently have for gathering uh, knowledge or of how something works. So it's something like, like that kind of meaning is, is a meaning of scientism that I would quite happily accept. But I'm not sure that it's helpful to attach that to scientism because then you're probably labelling all the scientists in the world as being adherents of scientism. So it effectively becomes so broad that it's uh, effectively meaningless. But that is the, the weak meaning that I would accept that you're describing. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, that that's it. I just wanted to get your sort of take on that much. So, without further ado, Matt, I'll, I'll turn it to you to make your sort of opening case about the post prior probability. Pretend you've got the burden of proof now, and and you're <laughs> the friendly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What are some reasons to think that miracles are probably impossible in your view? Let me define what I mean by miracle in this context. A miracle is an act that can't have happened naturally. It requires some extra natural or, or supernatural, whatever word you want to use, agent to act unnaturally in order for something to happen because it couldn't happen naturally at all. That's how I'm defining at this point. So for me to say that uh, I don't accept miracles as, as being probable is I am at this point unconvinced that there is 
such an agent that could do such a thing and without an agent to be able to do such a thing the thing that it would do can't be done if you see what i'm saying so a miracle can't exist can't happen because i'm not in the position where i can accept that an agent who is able to do a miracle exists so that is basically the the nutshell which i would use for saying that the miracles are implausible and i struggle to accept that they've happened that's your main reason just that why or do you have other other ones well it all hinges around around that statement really without me accepting that there's an agent that could do one and i can't accept that one happens so it's kind of pointless me going into any other explanation because it all hinges back to there's nobody who could do one so it's not going to happen anyway I would say, first of all, okay, well, can you, since you do have this burden, uh, burden of proof and you're claiming there are no agents responsible to, to do these supernatural actions, presumably there are no agents to do these natural actions either. Could, could there be any non-agents that could cause supernatural actions, just like there are non-agents that you think cause natural events to occur? Don't really understand the question, I'm afraid, Dale. So your reason for thinking that miracles are probably impossible is because there, there's no intelligent agent that can cause such events to happen. Yeah. Okay. So, so what if there is a supernatural, unintelligent thing that causes these events to occur? Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to imagine how that might happen. I mean, if um, you're asking me to talk around a hypothetical, which I've, I've never even considered... Uh, something exists that's what unintelligent so something supernatural but not an intelligent supernatural thing that does something that's in the world that's not natural i'm i'm struggling to imagine how how such a thing could could happen could you try and be a bit a bit more specific and try and clarify it with a with a height with a specific hypothetical um sure well well hindus believe that the law of karma is a, is a non intelligent agent uh, on a supernatural transcendent level that engages in cause and effect relations in, in the world and has impacts in, in the world so yeah that something like that perhaps okay I, th- I think i'm getting now so i cheat somebody at business for whatever and then karma gets me a couple of years later in a stock market crash or something like that i would need to be convinced that that process existed to create that link for giving me justice on my bad act previously and i'm i'm unconvinced that such a thing uh, exists i i still can't accept that 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 happens because i'm still at the same base problem i'm unconvinced that that causal agent even exists but you know if you were to convince me that such a causal agent of, of karma it exists and I, I might think differently but i don't know how that would happen so the other thing i just wanted to ask about in terms of your argument so this is where i think the burden of proof the friendly burden of proof does come handy because you've mentioned look you personally are unconvinced that a supernatural thing or a supernatural agent of any kind fairies god leprechaun leprechauns or whatever don't exist but but that's just talking about your own state of epistemic justification, for, for all you know, there's no, you're not convinced by anything you've seen, but have you taken any means to have, to make a warranted claim in this department? Like, can you assert there is no agent in fact, uh, or there probably is no agent in fact, or is it just 
nothing you've seen convinces you you're in this default state still. You have no reason to think that there is, but you have no reason to think that there's not such a supernatural agent. I see no evidence that convinces me that there is, and I'm currently unconvinced that there is. So I, I live my life as if there isn't. And my life works very well living as, as though there isn't. Whether or not I say there categorically isn't, or whether I say I'm just unconvinced, but it, it might be true, it makes no practical difference to the way my life works. So I don't really care either way, to be honest, uh, Dale. If someone wants to say that I'm de facto making the positive state that no such thing uh, exists, that's not what I'm saying, but it makes no difference the way my, my life runs because I just live my life as as though there is no such being. Let me try a crack at this. I want to state how I would look at it. And Matthew, I want, I want to see if you agree. So if I thought there was no evidence for what I'm calling miracles, which obviously I do think there is, but let's say I thought there's no evidence, then I would say the reason why I don't believe in them is because of essentially Occam's razor, that for something, for, for me to believe in something, it needs to have explanatory power. Um, otherwise, it, we're back to the flying spaghetti monster. It's just purely ad hoc. And so if I didn't think miracles were happening, postulating the I idea of a miracle becomes almost like the flying spaghetti monster based on if I believe, of course, if there's a God or not. So that then you're into arguments about if there's a God or not. But if you're trying to bracket that out and just talking about these supernatural interventions, then if there's no events that I'm trying to explain, then it's purely ad hoc. And therefore, I think Occam's razor does away with it. Matthew, does that track at all with yep, how you would look that, at that? That tracks. I'm quite quite happy to ride with that okay so that's good i think you we presented your case your your reason yeah i i guess my final point is just because it practically works doesn't mean it's true because my belief in god could i could say the same thing about my belief in in a supernatural agent god or something like that so yeah if, if we're concerned about what is or isn't the case then we would have to do more than or or you would have to at least establish hey if, if there was such an, a supernatural agent out there then my life i would expect that my life wouldn't work as well if that were the case or something and that proves there's probably no agent so yeah that, that would be sort of my final thoughts on that if we can prove god exists and i i believe that we can on a balance of probabilities then yeah right there god exists entails that supernatural events are plausible doesn't mean necessarily that he's actually done supernatural events in history but they, they are plausible or probably possible if we can prove god exists i think all three of us w would agree on that you know if we could establish that that would be a good positive reason to to argue that miracles are probably possible is that is that right guys yes yep. Okay. Now we just got to convince uh, Matthew to become a Christian, and we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, independent of, of proving God exists, if we could prove something like the soul exists, something that's non-physical, that might shake things up and, and get you open to, hey, there's more to this universe than modern science or naturalism gives it credit. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your, your take on that. If I could prove something like substance dualism is, is true, Matt, would that maybe make you provide some warrant to think that supernatural miracles are plausible in any way or don't think it's there's an obvious uh, road from that to theism it would certainly force me to 
rethink my materialism and it would uh, force me to assess what I do next. And I would definitely go on a quest to find out what the existence of a soul means and how that comes about and, and how that interacts. And is that limited to only humans? Are other animals affected uh, by that as well? So yeah, there'd be a, a lot of questions that I'd want answered resulting from that. And, and it would probably change the focus of a lot of things that I do. From the existence of the soul, I don't need to argue for theism, just for the plausibility of miracles. Unless, are you saying only on theism are, are miracles? Well, I'm not sure. How, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how a soul would show that miracles uh, exist. You, you'd need to show me how one links to the other. But I'd certainly be interested in how that would work. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, but but just so I know, you, you are open, let's pretend fairies are supernatural agents, not God, and they're doing supernatural events. Like you, you would be open to other agents other than God doing supernatural things. Yeah, on, on the assumption that they were shown to exist, yes. Gotcha. So Okay, cool. So so yeah, that was sort of my case, is, is the soul is a supernatural entity, and it, it stands in cause and effects and, and does supernatural events when it interacts with my body. So that, that's how I would use that argument. Supernatural events are conceivable. They are logically possible events. So we, we have our modal evaluating faculties, which provides us with modal knowledge. And yeah, I, I can conceive of Jesus rising from the dead, for example. It's conceivable, therefore that means, by definition, it is logically possible. And unless you have, given the, the principle of indifference, unless you can present factual reasons why miracles wouldn't be possible in this world or this universe in particular, then the, lo the mere logical possibility, all else being equal, is enough to establish yeah, miracles are factually possible in this universe as well. Yeah, what, what do you make of that? I think it's certainly important to point out to figure out what is logically possible versus impossible. So it's a helpful distinction, but I guess to me that doesn't add a ton because probably a lot of the flying spaghetti monster type creatures are logically possible. That doesn't mean they're any less ad hoc. Yeah, but I pretty much... Uh go with that this isn't intended to be unkind but it, it feels like it's trying to to slip god in through the back door if you see what i mean by saying oh well it, it's logically possible therefore it's real i'm not making a specific accusation uh dale so please forgive me that's just kind kind of how it feels when i when i hear it and when when i process it i'll go with robert where he says you need more than just saying logically uh, uh possible yeah, I, I want actually possible, you know, because when you say logically possible, I think you're still talking in hypotheticals. And I want to step out of that and, and deal with the actual. The proposition here is not whether miracles actually happen. We're not there yet. We're, we're asking, are miracles possible or, or are they probably possible? So on that front, logical possibility is good enough it, alone that that establishes, yep, they, they are possible. The only qualification is are we asking, are they factually possible? I thought you put it if before, that if they're logically possible, does it make it like more likely that they exist or something like that? Uh, gotcha. Yeah, no, and I would agree 100% with you. Even if they are factually possible, that doesn't, you know, that would be, I would still be in my default state as to whether they actually occur or something like that. So yeah, we're on the same page okay. there. This is the last section of the theory part, and I want to reserve the most part of the time for, for Robert's sake to talk about the actual examples. This is the section on identifying the miracles of God. And Robert, I, I know that you actually have a unique take and an interesting take on, you know, how, how is it that we have, as human beings 
go about identifying miracles in theory. My podcast I did with my friend, atheist friend Ryan Price, we talked a good bit about this. And it's a very challenging topic, which is why I would say I've actually moved away from kind of technically trying to identify a miracle and instead just trying to identify, trying to see what events are happening in the world and if these remarkable events are happening around Christianity. That That is so that is sort of the case I'll be presenting in, in a bit. So. I actually bracket out entirely, at least at first, if it's even supernatural. Like, it could be entirely natural, but they're remarkable, and they nearly only happen around Christian faith, for instance. So when it comes to just identifying it in a more philosophical sense, it is a very challenging thing. I think, yeah, I think the conversation gets confusing. I'd like to hear what both you guys have to think about it. I, I think it needs to seem like there is an agent involved because if it doesn't seem like an agent is involved then it seems like a law and if it's a law then no matter how strange it is there's no use calling it a miracle because there's no mind behind it there's no choosing so i feel like whatever we're looking at needs to seem like there's some sort of agent involved Mm -hmm. and then secondly i would say it has to go far beyond what is currently known to be natural. And I think that is a decent working definition and what you would look for. So that's sort of what I would put out there. These debates often get very philosophical, very technical, very definitional. And a lot of that is unavoidable. But the downside of that is you can get very stalled out. You can be two ships passing in the night, that sort of thing. So what I started to think of is like, why do we actually believe this or that and we we often put forward very technical arguments but that is often not precisely why we don't believe it and for someone who who is interested in this i would definitely recommend my heuristics podcast because i take a while to fully lay it out but just to me there's a mirror image case here that i'd like to i'll probably touch on a little more later but a mirror image case of miracles for the christian trying to prove and biblical difficulties for the skeptic. And just as an example, I don't think a skeptic disbelieves the Bible, or let's say a, an ex-Christian. So they they were prone to believe it at first, and then they end up rejecting it. I don't think they reject it because of a single difficult passage. Because if it was just one, then that crazy resolution that a Christian apologist puts forward would probably be enough. Because you would say, okay, it's literally that one passage in the Bible. There's probably not one single biblical contradiction or atrocity in the Old Testament that is bad enough or that can't be resolved, that it alone could do it. To me, the real reason people see a humanist in the Bible and why people who especially come from a rigid literalistic interpretation and losing their faith is because of what I would argue is more of a heuristic, and really to to avoid using that word, perhaps just a probabilistic, cumulative look at it. So it's that there are multiple very hard passages, and then hundreds of at least medium hard passages, and so you're intuitively making this judgment of, okay, if a crazy, sure, a crazy resolution might work for one of these, 
it's not going to work for all of these. That's the probability starts become too vanishing. I would say miracles are really the same thing. The struggle is it's tough to actually get skeptics to look at the data for miracles. And, yeah. and this is where the heuristic comes in. You don't have time to do more than just look at one or two cases. But that's exactly like a skeptic trying to convince a Christian of one or two cases in the Bible, the Christian can comfortably and even perhaps be warranted in saying, well, I bet there's resolutions for those. But what the Christian really needs to do is read a Bart Ehrman book or, or just survey the data more fully to really come into contact with the wide swath of data, both the width of the data and the depth of the more difficult ones. Then you can decide if you can overturn it. And so I think miracles is the exact same thing. The, uh, so many of these debates end up being focusing on maybe one miracle case. And uh, of course, a skeptic can find a way that it was natural. In any single case, you can do that. The question is, when you add that in with the wider swath of data, does that become probabilistically accurate? And that's why I turn it in terms of a heuristic. And that's how I would say we make most judgments in life because most of the time we're not doing individual scientific experiments. We're not doing firsthand research. We're doing a lot of these heuristics and then digging in deeper as necessary. Awesome. Yeah. Th yeah. Thank you very much for, for going into that. Because when I, when I heard that, I think that this is the part that I agree with you on. And, and I think that was a very apt comparison between uh, the Bible contradictions for the for the Christian versus one or two examples of a skeptic and, and that sort of thing with miracle. In my case, I, I do think it is valid through the lens of identifying miracles through the lens of intelligent design. And specifically the, the theory, I, I won't go into the, the full hour explanation, but um, I, I like William Dembski's notion of specified complexity. I, I think the these criteria of specification whereby there is a, an, a very improbable event or a small probability event that conforms to an independently given pattern. And when we can establish these two criteria, specificity as well as complexity of a given event, then this warrants the inference of intelligent design and, and thereby an intelligent agency. It, it underlines how we identify purposeful choice for a certain end. And when it comes to the issue of miracles, I'm specifically interested in a specific subset of miracles. Miracles that are designed for the end of authenticating a, a given religion as being true. And that's sort of been my main focus, uh, as opposed to other miracles, like miracles of compassion or, or miracles done for any other reason or purpose or that sort of thing. So the way that we can identify miracles relating to specified complexity is, look, there. once you prove the event has actually occurred, there are two fundamental elements. Number one, the event has to be extraordinary. And I've gone into various ways of, of identifying an event as extraordinary and and this this totally bypasses the notion is it supernatural natural i don't care the, the ancients didn't think that way it bottom line is it, it is remarkable it is event it is an event that would serve as a sign or wonder to the reasonable person and by reasonable person that's the legal definition you know an average person average intelligence average due, due diligence uh, average knowledge base whatever you want to say the, the average guy in the street so the extraordinary is that relates to the complexity angle it's an extraordinary event and then the specification comes in with the religious context that that event is attached to whereby it creates this pattern where we would expect a, a god if he exists or a supernatural agent to 
do remarkable or extraordinary events that would authenticate the religious message that teaches human beings how to achieve their ultimate purpose in creation. So that, in a nutshell, is what I think is a helpful way to try and bypass the supernatural, naturalistic definitions and all of this. And look, we have valid criteria to infer intelligent design for certain ends. In the case of my criteria for a G-Belief authenticating event, we have certain criteria to identify remarkable events designed to authenticate a given religious message that's enough i would i submit to identify a miracle i think the intention is 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 genuine and uh, I, I want to acknowledge that i think there's a significant challenge in identifying a miracle and uh, i think the, the reasons for that are in order to be able to confirm that a miracle has happened and it doesn't have an otherwise natural explanation is it it almost requires us to have a full and complete understanding of everything that can and will happen naturally and we don't have that 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 full knowledge and we probably will never have that full knowledge stepping over the boundary into being able to positively identify something as a miracle i think under those kinds of uh, criteria is is a challenge it's just a a, a fact of life a practical challenge and uh, so I I struggled to imagine how uh, how a claim could could step over that. There are obviously certain areas where we could. I think uh, one example that's often thrown about a, a human limb being severed and and then growing back would would probably uh, on demand would probably qualify as a confirmed and repeatable miracle. And I I would probably agree with that as a a specific example. But then we can say, but there are. Uh, reptiles that can regrow a tail you know what if there is it humans have a copy of that gene but it's currently suppressed and what if in a specific individual that uh, re-emerges and enables uh, uh, the re- regrowing of a limb if you think hard enough you could probably come out with a natural example for almost anything so i think that makes confirming anything as a miracle uh, genuine challenge certainly if you're talking about individual cases uh, robert's suggesting that you take a wider heuristic picture is is probably uh, the way to go uh, with the data the question i would then ask are is are the bits of data that you've got that you're building into that picture good enough to to make building blocks or are they just maybes so i would still want to validate each individual piece and say is that good enough to qualify or are there enough question marks that that one is disqualified there is no forest if there are no trees maybe they're all just paper mache trees or something like that yeah how how do you how do you how, how would you come back to you know, Matt's objection about your your holistic approach. If, if there really are no miracles when you look at the details, then it, is it valid to use the whole picture to say, well, yeah, there, there is, or yeah, what do you make of that? Uh, no, yeah, there's no forest, there's no trees. I, I would say you zoom in and zoom out constantly. And I think this is how we live life successfully is we think broadly and then we're challenged and we have to go to the details I think where people screw up is sometimes they get stuck in the details at that point. They get stuck on one detail and they build everything around that. And I would argue we probably want to make the decision back up at the forest level, but you got to go look at some trees too. remember that ultimately it is a forest. So back to like the biblical difficulties, you're never going to convince anyone if you just say hey, this guy Bart Ehrman has 100 biblical difficulties. It's like, okay, once you show a few of them, and if they seem convincing, then that's where the heuristic comes in of like, 
okay, what about the other 97? The probabilities are starting to hit me that those also, at least some of them, are as convincing. And so same with miracles, that you have to have some key ones to get you started. The problem is if you stay at the tree level, then you can explain it away by it being a single outlier. So to avoid the outlier objection, you need to zoom back out. One thing I, I wanted to say to you, so I've got, got two things to say in this this section before we can go to Robert's uh, favorite one. But um, so so for you, so yeah, I, I hear what you're saying as well, right? We, we actually, if we're taking my in, in specified complexity approach, the events actually have to be complex, right? You, there are all these number of possible naturalistic explanations and you need to assess those and, and that sort of thing to see, well, it, is it actually improbable to occur and or very improbable to occur on, on a, according to plain natural law or random chance processes? So, so that would be part of the application of these criteria, right? It would, it would fit in that way. Sort of the issues that you raise. So, so Robert said that there's an issue of specificity. There's also the issue of the complexity, but they sort of fit into to my way of assessing these things. I'm still bothered by the word probability in there because let's say, for example, you came out with a, an example of miracle. It doesn't actually matter what the example is, but you said the probability of this being natural is one in 20,000, so it, it can't be natural. With enough numbers of events, a one in 20,000 event will happen. The language of probability in there is still a problem and very rare natural events do happen regularly just because of the short sheer number of things happening and, and combinations uh, occurring i would need something more than just this has got a very low probability of being natural therefore it can't be matthew let me ask you this if there had been 20 medically documented cases of limbs growing back and all 20 were in the context of prayer and immediately happened is that the sort of shift you're looking for because there you're getting the specified complexity it's in the I, I am that that would genuinely cause challenges and I'd, I'd want to know what's going on there absolutely in fact it probably wouldn't even take 20. <laughs> that sort of example would would absolutely have me wanting to know more so robert in your video you said you're sympathetic to my notion of specified complexity and using that to as a lens through which identifying miracles of god and that sort of thing and i wrote up my 20 pages i, I went into a lot of detail explaining the details of, of what it means for something to be complex or and something to be specified and that sort of thing. Some of the skeptics came back to me and instead of addressing really the substance of what specified complexity is and how it works and objecting on that front, they just kind of came back with, yeah, but the majority of biologists think William Dembski is a laughingstock and intelligent design is, is a joke. Uh, evolution is where it's at. So this was sort of the main objection I got to my entire 21 pages of writing there. And you and your video seem to agree with them. You were saying, well, no, appeal to authority is a help, could be a helpful heuristic. So yeah, what was it wrong for them to, to come back with this objection to my thing? Or was that a good enough reason to, to throw out what I've done? Basically all these heuristics, if you have, I'm also a big fan of the concept of a defeater. I hear that a lot with like William Lane Craig and yeah. philosophers like that. And it's very useful when paired with heuristics because a lot of times we start with a heuristic and then we have kind of a defeater for that heuristic and we have to broaden our understanding of the world. I think that's helpful for like the argument from authority. Authority can be a very strong heuristic, like consensus of scholars and the scholars themselves are very diverse. That's a great starting heuristic. Something can overturn that, 
But I think a lot of the debates today, you can't even use that appeal to authority at all. It's it's not it's ruled out of court. But I still think it's a helpful starting point. And I think at least to some degree, the burden of the proof, a burden of proof is on the person to say why all the authorities are wrong. Like that's a big statement. So with the Dembski example, my first impression was, I don't know that much about Dembski and why he's rejected by biologists or whatever. But my first thought is, I seriously doubt the reason why biologists are rejecting him have anything to do with his mathematical definition of complexity. Like, I think it has to do with where he takes that with intelligent design. Uh, another uh, rebut to the appeal to authority here is you have biologists critiquing a mathematical view. So if the consensus of mathematicians rejected Dembski's ideas on complexity, then that is a pretty strong heuristic. Now, I think you should still dig in, but that's a much stronger heuristic than biologists who I don't think are even rejecting him for his mathematical views. Let's get into specifics now. Actual examples. Are, are there any actual miracles that can be identified in that sort of thing? And I believe there are. And I'm going to couch this within a wider argument to a degree. So I'm going to save the specifics towards the end. I'm trying to make this whole segment short. But one interesting way to compare, I think, the way I tend to look at approach this and the way you, and I would say most apologists probably approach this, Dale, is I would say your approach is more top-down, more starting with fundamentals of God, logic possibilities. And what I have basically converted to, at least for now, is fully bottom-up. Start with the data and what we see and then move on to explanations. Obviously, neither of those positions are exclusive. One of the things I want to do in my life is for everyone to have a clearer view of the world. That involves a clearer view of the data regardless of how we explain that data. And I think what a great example is, here's an appeal to authority for you. From what I understand, the scholarly, almost universal consensus is that the disciples had experiences that they thought were the risen Christ, had visions that they thought were the risen Christ after he died. So what's really helpful is to bracket that out and say, okay, this is the historical consensus and then skeptical historians, of course, think it's a hallucination or not. But we lose something really important when in that discussion, all of a sudden people come away thinking the disciples didn't even have those experiences. I'm using this as an example because that doesn't happen too much in the topic of Jesus's resurrection. Like, for instance, Bart Ehrman readily accepts the disciples had these experiences. I think most skeptics I know also think that. So that's great. The important thing is we're having a clear picture of what happened in the world. And what the scholarly historical consensus is, is that the disciples had these experiences. Great. So we can all put that in our pockets as part of the data we have. Then we can get on to debating what that was. My problem is, I think with miracles, this is an utter total mess. I think the philosophical considerations of the explanation has muddied the consideration of the evidence so much that I would argue most skeptics have a severely lacking view of what is out there. And I would say Christians aren't even very aware for the most part. I like this quote. There's a great podcast called The Hinge Podcast. This gets confusing because now The Hinge Dating App also has a podcast. <laughs> it is not the dating app. I'm There's familiar with podcast. the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's fun off from Unbelievable, which we're all a fan of. And it was Christian host and atheist host, Corey Markham, the atheist, as the uh, intro to the Miracles episode they did. 
He said, this was the biggest challenge to my atheism so far. These stories fly in the face of the dismissive attitude that most atheists have. Perhaps you remember, in the first episode, this became a stopping point too. Miracles. The topic pops up all over the place. It's unavoidable, like an ominous cloud hanging over us no matter where we go. So what do we do about it? Well, Drew and I have gone out and investigated some actual, relatively recent miracle claims. Some of the most provocative claims out there. We think it can shed light on whether these first century miracle claims could have actually happened. And I have to say that what we've uncovered might be the biggest challenge to my atheism that I've come across yet. But don't think we're done talking about biases. That issue is going to keep popping up too. You can look for the next episode two Thursdays from now, February 15th. There's only three left. As you've just heard, Robert was correct in how the Hinge Miracles show was introduced. However, when you hear the episode, you will see that the miracles described are not as convincing as is suggested. There is a link to that episode in the show notes where you will hear the alleged miracles of Bruce Venata and Dr. Sean George. In the wind-up to that episode, you will hear Drew and Corey discuss the stories. My initial reaction to these stories, especially the the story, Bruce Van Natta's story, both of these are amazing, but it, it's easier for me to come up with some sort of plausible storyline for what happened in the, in the case of Sean. It's much harder for me to do that with, with respect to Bruce Van Natta. And so my initial reaction to Bruce Van Natta, I was, sh- I was shocked. I was, I was just sitting there listening. Uh, I remember just sitting there listening, and there's numerous times when I had goosebumps mm. and where I was just sort of struck. Like I was lost at a loss for words because the guy. It's it's so hard for me to believe that that this guy's lying. So right now, if you have to make a choice, what do you think is the most likely explanation for what happened with Bruce? I think the most likely explanation. Is that there's something there? There are there are aspects of his story that are wrong. Where even though he's being honest, mm. somewhere along along the way, some of this information got mishandled or changed or something happened. So at the end of the last episode, you said that these stories were the biggest challenge to your atheism that you faced. What did you mean by that? When I first was sitting there listening to Bruce and hearing this story and then in the immediate aftermath as I was sitting there just taking stock of it all and reflecting, I didn't just instantly like, oh yeah, this is a miracle and I, I, I'm i not saying that I think it's a miracle now, but I was struggling to, to explain what I was listening to because as I keep saying, I don't think, I don't think that he was lying. Yeah, if I only heard these two stories, I don't know that I would be all that convinced yet. But there's so many stories like these out there, especially in like Africa and East Asia, where Christianity's been exploding for the last 50 years. So part of the challenge with looking at the resurrection of Jesus as we have throughout Hinge. So we we have almost as much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as we have for the existence of Jesus, period. The difference is that the existence of Jesus isn't a miracle claim. The resurrection of Jesus is. That's why it's not generally accepted. Being exposed to these kinds of modern-day miracle claims 
does that have any impact on what you think the bar of evidence should be for the resurrection of Jesus? So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to say, I don't know if I can say that I think it makes it more likely, but I, what I would say is that stories like these fly in the face of the, the common thought among atheists out there that there's just no, there's nothing to this, to the idea of there being miracles. Like there's this hmm. sort of dismissal, dismissive attitude, right? Uh, among atheists. What do I need? Okay. So it's even as strong and powerful as the story in this case is, there's these little gray areas, right? So, so this guy, right? So he, he allegedly, he regrew his small intestine. But the way I get to that is first believing that he's honest. And I think I, like I said, I think I, I, I it's, it's really hard for me to, to think that the guy's lying. But second, by trusting that the, the documents and basically the analysis that he's given of all the documents, something like that. And so it's not like, in other words, it's, I guess the problem is that even in this case with, say, Bruce Vanetta, like I didn't see that his small intestine really did grow. So you can't rule out other possibilities. Right. So there are a couple of things you've said in previous episodes that have really stuck out to me. Like one phrase you use quite a bit is this one thing may be true, but it doesn't rule out these all these other possibilities. Like, sure, maybe the disciples saw this thing, but it doesn't rule out A, B, C, and D. One thing you've also said is we've talked about like the, the possibility of a personal experience. Like, I've asked you, what would it take for you to believe? And you said you can imagine a personal experience which many people have, but the kind of personal experience you were talking about was something where like a couple of million people would see the same thing and there would be no other way to explain it. That discussion effectively sums up my position on miracles. Some miracle stories are amazing. However, these stories also miss very important information. In the case of Bruce Venata, it is not possible to find the doctor's side. Is what Bruce says about his intestine being removed and growing back true? I can't know that. I am sure he believes what he says, so I do not think he is intentionally misleading anyone. However, that is not good enough to accept the story as told is true. It is possible that he has misunderstood or misremembered some critical aspects and so has reached a false conclusion. I can't confirm his story. And since his story goes against what we know about human anatomy, there is good reason to think that there are elements of the story which are false. Bruce's honest retelling of what he thinks happened is not good enough to take it as true. This is why I have a fundamental problem with this type of Christian testimony. I am expected to unquestioningly believe that the story is true, and therefore that miracles happen. I can't do that. That is my modest goal, is to get more people to get to that stage. Because then we can debate what to do with that. Maybe the reasons for God not existing are so strong that we still just bracket out those crazy miracle stories. But I want skeptics to know more about the crazy miracle stories. So that is stage one, is like, what is the data out there? And then we can argue from there. So what I would say, the prime of evidence is that there is this remarkable phenomena happening and it clusters around Christian faith. And it's happening at a number and a magnitude that is 
remarkable. And I'll go into detail on that. That is my claim. And then you can go on and just and figure out what exactly that means. Even if you can't prove it's supernatural, I still think that's prima facie evidence for Christianity. It's literally what Jesus said what Jesus did and what he said would happen, you know, people, the blind receiving sight. So even if the blind receive sight around Christians and somehow it's natural, I mean, it's still like, what the heck is happening there? That seems like prima facie evidence for Christianity. So that that's kind of where I get to. The last thing I'll say is I think a helpful comparison is like UFO stories. I don't know that much about UFO research, so I'm actually tentative to dismiss it. But in general, I don't believe those stories. And this goes back to your blank slate, Dale, is I do have a reason for dismissing them. And it's that we all know there is a background noise of random kooky stories out there. And we also know they can't all be true because a lot of them are contradictory. A lot of them have proven to be false. We would all agree there's this background noise out there of hoaxes, of kookiness or whatever. And from what I know of UFO stories, they don't rise above that. They don't have a consistency, a number, a magnitude, a medical evidenced amount to them that makes me overcome that. So what I would argue is miracles have exactly that. They have plenty to recommend them. And my main challenge to the skeptic is what is their alternative explanation for this evidence. So now let me just give a brief survey and I'm gonna give some at the forest level and some at the tree level. So one of the very first things, uh, I can't recommend enough this book by Craig Keener. I know Dale, you're familiar with it. It's called Miracles. It is the book on miracles, probably written ever. <laughs> like I don't think anything compares to it really. One complaint actually I have of it is it doesn't go into a ton of detail in most cases. His goal is to survey more than anything. So I'm really supplementing this with some more detail from other places. But one striking thing is he shows from survey data that at minimum, hundreds of millions of people alive today claim to be an eyewitness or a recipient of a miraculous healing. That is a huge number of people. And I think without a doubt, that would blow David Hume away when he was making his miracle claim is that immediately makes you slow down from making a generalization that nobody believes in miracles and, and nobody has seen a miracle. Because right here, you have hundreds of millions of people that claim to have. That gives you some background. That's some of the forest. Going into some of the trees, I think some of the most striking cases and that if people want to dig in on, these are the ones I would recommend. First is Barbara Snyder. She was cured of multiple sclerosis. And there's a great video. If you go to my blog, the, the one where I talked to Ryan Price. You can see links to this. Basically, there's a great Lee Strobel video where he interviews her. And I also have Lee Strobel's book. Let me just read a few things from that, some snippets. But basically, one of her physicians, Dr. Harold Adolph, a board-certified surgeon who performed 25,000 operations in his career, declared, Barbara was one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. She was legally blind, had a feeding tube, a breathing tube, unable to walk for seven years, and was currently in hospice care with six months or less to live. At this point, a radio show, I think Moody Bible Institute, put her case on the radio show and had all these people praying for her. And she heard an audible voice, according to her, that said, daughter, get up and walk. There were family members present there. I don't know if they heard the voice, but they definitely saw her hop out of bed 
able to walk, and which is not normally possible, even if you're fully healthy and you haven't walked in seven years. She was able to walk. She could see. I don't think she needed the breathing tube anymore. I'm not sure she mentioned that part, but her muscles had become deformed. Like her fingers were back towards her wrist because of the MS. That was fully healed. She went to the church service that night where they had been praying for her along with the radio show. She went back to her doctor and doctor, uh, she had multiple doctors working on her. And this is Dr. Thomas Marshall says, I have never witnessed anything like this before or since and consider it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God performing a true miracle. Lee Strubble was interviewing her 35 years later and she was still fully healed. I have seen the newspaper clipping of this. Two of her doctors have written about her in books. I have bought one of the books and read the section on it, and it corroborated what Lee Strobel said. So this is a very well-documented case. I think she had like something like 20 years of MS documentation. This is one of the most striking ones, and I think it's well worth watching the video where Lee Strobel interviews her. Not to get ahead of myself, but what I'd like to challenge skeptics is give me an example of this happening where there wasn't an intense religious component to it. Like, give me an example where someone spontaneously came back from MS, but there was no voice of God and no radio praying for her. Just to give a few more before I hand it back to you guys, on that same Hinge podcast, they interviewed Bruce Van Nata. He had a truly gruesome accident as a mechanic working under a car. I won't go into all the details, but they interview him. And basically... He was prayed over and his within a week or two, that's when he went back to the doctor. He had lost a huge chunk of his intestines. His small intestine grew back something like eight or 10 inches. And I like this as an example because it's basically a body part growing back because um, the small intestine supposedly cannot grow back at all. It can get like thicker, but it can't grow in length. That just doesn't happen. And here is a case of it happening. Um, and so he, he claims to have all the medical data. He has a website. Um, you can listen to the interview. Uh, a third one that I really like is uh, Dwayne Miller. Um, this is a quote from Lee Strobel's book. It says, over three years, he was examined by 63 physicians. His case was even scrutinized by a Swiss symposium of the world's leading throat specialists. The diagnosis, the flu virus destroyed the nerves of his vocal cords, rendering them limp. When Miller asked about his prognosis for recovery, a doctor told him zero. The crazy thing about this particular miracle is there is an audio recording of it happening. It was during him teaching a Sunday school class, and this is in the Lee Strubel video on my website. And you can hear his voice go from severely damaged to almost fully healed within 30 seconds or a minute. And they're all reacting to it. It's unbelievably incredible. And so... Uh, here, here's a quote on the follow-up with Lee Strobel. Subsequent doctor examinations showed his throat looks like it never had any problems. In fact, against all odds, even the scar tissue has disappeared. Said one physician, even if I could explain how you got your voice back by coincidence, which I can't, I can never explain what happened to the scar tissue. Um, so those are three striking examples. I'm going to zoom back out real quick to talk about peer-reviewed studies. One that is always thrown around, there is uh, a study in Southern Medical Journal where they went to a healing service and used audio and visual equipment to measure eyesight and deafness. And here's a quote from the results. 
whereas improvements after hypnosis have averaged two to two and a half times increase in the most optimistic studies and none in others, the average visual acuity improvement measured for those receiving prayer through the earlier mentioned ministry in Mozambique was over tenfold. So that I like that piece. It's comparing it to the placebo effect or hypnosis and showing it goes way beyond that. And the, the final thing is a lot of skeptics bring up the STEP study, which uh, supposedly disproved prayer. First of all, there's problems with the, the sample uh, group they used. But the main thing I want to bring up is there's been multiple gold standard double blind studies that have shown significant improvement. Just on the heuristic level, let me go back to this. This is a quote from Keener. In the modern period, I have come across claims of perhaps 400 healings of blindness through prayer, the majority of them from sources that I trust, some of them from eyewitnesses I personally interviewed or know personally. And these can be regarded as merely a representative sample. Certainly a larger number of blind persons are not healed, but the healings of blindness nevertheless remain significant. Some of these healings have included medical documentation of organic problems, including, as noted earlier, scarring of the eye tissue, which disappeared during the healing. So, uh, oh, and in some cases of healings from blindness, the eyewitness reporters have observed eyes white from cataracts immediately change as the cataracts have disappeared. My goal with all this is to zoom in, zoom out, and say there's a lot of data here. And I'm not saying it proves the case, but I think it needs to be dealt with. I don't think it can be dismissed. I think the only way you could dismiss this is say, oh, well, here is equal data for Islam. And here's equal data for people with no religion. But I don't see anything like that. I've searched for Muslim miracles. I've searched for similar sort of things happening outside of these contexts. You can find a little bit. But that's my challenge to skeptics is what is the alternative examples? And so, yeah, I will leave it there. It's always difficult talking about specific examples for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. We don't know absolutely everything there is to know. Therefore, it is expected that things will happen that we can't explain. And growing up in the environment that uh, I grew up, it wasn't unusual to hear stories of someone having a, a medical emergency, going to hospital, coming back. And someone saying, well, what did the doctor say? And the doctor shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know, it was a miracle. I heard these kind of stories quite a few times uh, growing up. It always seems to be that miracle was used as a placeholder for, I don't know, I, I don't understand. And I think quite often that is what is actually happening. I'm not not saying all the time, but it certainly feels with what I see and what experience uh, and, and access that I've had is quite a lot of the time it's used in that kind of context. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know. As part of my life as a Christian, I spent time on a prayer for healing team in the church that, that I was going. I was uh, on it for about three or four years uh, before I decided to come off it again. We prayed for all sorts of things during that time and the, the team met for, for regular meetings and there was somebody on the team who was um, supposed to have a gift of prophecy. In all the time I was part of that and uh, in all the time that I, I prayed for people, I never saw one physical healing at all. You know, elderly people would come for, for minor things, he hearing failing, eyesight failing, the kind of thing you expect to happen in old age and nothing ever came of, of any of that. But by far the vast majority of prayers that I did for people were emotional support by a long margin. There was also a separate couple who advertised what they called a healing ministry and they did a monthly evening service, very charismatic, and they would do the, um, the charismatic laying of hands of people for prayer. And it was mainly 
emotional support i never witnessed a physical healing or or something that i would have then called uh, a miracle that's kind of my takeaway from things like that and a family member who had an experience which at her funeral was described falsely uh, i say uh, as a miracle it's a story that's been part of my family because it's actually my mother that had this experience and it, it was never described as a miracle ever what what happened to her and then over the 30 years of her life following that the story merged through multiple retellings uh, from people and when it came to her funeral the minister stood up and described what happened to her as a miracle and I was sitting there shaking my head saying no one ever up until this moment on this day has ever used miracle describe what happened here and now someone's doing this and at a funeral of all places that was a difficult thing to experience but the point I'm, I'm making there is again we're talking a retrospective uh, application of, of miracle to to something that happened that that wasn't when I look at a case that is described as a miracle Robert's mentioned a, a couple here and I don't know a huge amount about all of those cases but I know a little bit about some of them I kind of see the same kind of pattern something has happened something great has happened to someone I, I don't want to take that away but there, there seems to be that that the overly keen jumping to a miracle is, is the feeling that I get from it. But I will acknowledge that I don't know everything about any of those cases. I only know a little bit. So it could well be that I'm suffering from not enough knowledge. But that seems to be how I'm, I'm feeling about some of the cases that I've looked into. I think my main point is that I would agree with Matt that we should bracket these remarkable things into put it in a bucket of, wow, that's weird. I don't know. If they seemed to not cluster around a certain religious faith. So that is why I want to keep pushing the challenge to skeptics of like, I'm presenting citations of a lot of data from the Christian side, and I have even sought out it from like Islam with turning up basically nothing. So it's the specified complexity. To me, the specified complexity is what makes this look like a miracle because you have the remarkable point, and if it was just remarkable, but spread evenly around the world where doctors knew of a few random cases of people coming back from MS on, the de on their deathbed, fine. But that's not what we see. It, it seems like it's clustered around Christian faith. And, and to me, it gets to a point when you survey the data that if you said, if I didn't know any better, it almost looks like the Christian God is doing stuff here. Now, you can still move on from there and say— I have better reasons to disbelieve God, and so I'm going to disbelieve this. That's fine. I'll give you that for the sake of this argument. But to me, I would love to get to a point with some of my arguments with skeptics where you would at least get to the point where it's like, if I didn't know any better, wow, this is happening, these remarkable things around the Christian faith. If I didn't know any better, this this would be uh, what Christians call a miracle. I'm okay with saying something like yeah if, if I didn't know better about this particular instance yeah I would agree that Christians would call that a miracle I think the question I want to ask is is it really an interesting point on Christianity just seems to have all the numbers on its side versus other religions I'll accept that with one proviso Christianity certainly has the claims of miracles in terms of numbers uh, uh, on its side I won't even attempt to argue that because I, I agree with, with Robert on that and uh, Christianity specifically has so many more miraculous claims than any other religion, probably all the other religions put together if you bother to try to count them all. I take no issue with that. The, the question I want to ask is, are they all miracles? And I'm going to pick on the Catholic Church uh, specifically. Catholicism is motivated 
to have miracles because of the way it, it promotes uh, some of its former followers as saints. So there is inbuilt into the structure a desire to, to have, have miracles, probably more so the, than any other sect of in any other, other religion. And so you have people who will create stories, uh, whether intentionally or otherwise, or, or will want to read miracles and assign them to, to certain saints. And there's one specific case of a, of a lady in India who claimed to have had a, a miracle of healing that was assigned, uh, I, I believe, to, to to Mother Teresa. But, you know, the, the specific individual who it is, is isn't the important part of, of this. And the doctor who treated her actually came out public and said, this is not a miracle. This is a medical phenomena and this is a description of how it happened. His case and his testimony was ignored and this lady's testimony was accepted uh, uh, by the Catholic Church as one of the points uh, uh, for, for sainthood for this individual. And so because there is an inbuilt motivation to, to have and, and promote and accept miracles. And so I would probably suggest that Christianity probably has uh, something similar and so i'm not at all surprised that there are more claims associated uh, with, with christianity i'm i'm more interested in in the veracity uh, of those claims and but in terms of the the healing case on the hinge podcast i have a very vague uh, recollection of the that that chap with under the car accident and and trying to look for examples of um, x-rays that would show before and after of the intestine growing but it, it was a while ago and, uh, and my memory is a bit vague uh, so I can't even remember if I did that search but it certainly is something that's gone through my mind so I can't remember being convinced uh, about that at all but I do know that Corey the the atheist on that wasn't convinced by the other story the doctor story who had the coma and etc because that's quite a dramatic story and hearing him talk about his experience again on the unbelievable show so it's, it's a very dr dramatic story and looking at the forums and interacting on the forums on that story specifically uh, you know, lots and lots of Christians very, very convinced uh, by by that story. Corey, who was the atheist on that podcast, whose quote that you you read out, David, he wasn't convinced uh, by that story being a being a genuine uh, miracle. And I'm I like Corey, wasn't convinced that it was a, a genuine miracle either. My main concern is like you bring up the weak examples of Mother Teresa and maybe a, a bias towards confirming these miracles in the Catholic Church, but to me that does nothing to really grapple with Barbara Snyder with MS, Bruce Venata with his small intestine, Dwayne Miller, who was examined by 63 physicians. This goes way far and beyond those weaker examples. That's fair. And I, I think I'm, I'm mentioning those because those are the ones I've, I've, I've got best in my, my knowledge. And the specific stronger examples that you're talking about, I, I don't have uh, enough knowledge about them. What I do know about MS, and, uh, and I've seen this mentioned by, by doctors before, is MS is a disease where people can go into spontaneous remission from MS, and there are cases where that has, has happened. So the MS case that you're particularly mentioned, it was MS plus, if I'll be forgiven for using that phrase, because it wasn't, you know, she was in a, in a very critical condition. I, I just don't know enough about that case and I'm not medically trained. So I don't feel specifically qualified to talk about that. But going back to MS specifically, it, it is a disease that not a huge amount is is known about. It's a There are couple of types of MS, if I remember correctly. And it is known that and under certain circumstances, people can appear to 
to um, spontaneously recover from it, or I think the phrase is used is they go into remission and they appear to all intensive purposes recovered, but the disease is still lingering there in their body and it, it might come back. But that's something that's been known about MS for some time. What we don't know is the full mechanism by which this happens. I, I still think spontaneous might be a misnomer there, which I would have to review, you know, case studies on MS as well. Yeah, it's possible that the medical definition of spontaneous wouldn't be the same as the layman's definition of spontaneous. I I mean, as far as like her immediate health returning to 100 percent, you know, like like, sure, it remits. So then she starts getting better if it was spontaneous. I don't want to quibble about that, but I, I seriously doubt the known cases are anything compared to this. And but I'm open to it. No skeptic skeptic um, responding to Lee Strobel has brought up these cases. I guess this is where the heuristic comes in is like, for instance, I brought this, the Barbara Snyder case up on a message board. A skeptic immediately said, oh, I think it's a hoax. And I said, wait, do you think the two doctors that wrote about her in books also? What about that? And they were like, oh, I think they're in on the hoax. But to me, that is a completely gratuitous, ultimately circular reasoning, because the reason why they think it's a hoax is because of the type of claim. But the reason why they don't believe in those claims is because they they say that they've never been shown to happen before. But the reason why it hasn't been shown to happen before is because they don't believe in it. So it becomes a circular thing where you need an independent reason to think it's a hoax. You need to say, oh, these are shady doctors that have a history of whatnot. Uh, but there and why haven't skeptics? refuted these examples like these are multiple examples that no skeptic has brought up how you know Dwayne Miller it's all made up you know like there that that's what starts to get me here that it, it seems like prima facie this is evidence for Christianity do you mind if I sort of interject as one interesting topic that I, I might want to get both of your guys take on I, I remember being impressed with Keener's book where he talks about lords because this is a Catholic yes. site yes. and they have rigorous, rigorous standards from, from non-Christians, doctors, internationally renowned. I mean, Protestants are, are coming on board and saying, I, I think there's something here. So, yeah, m- maybe you guys can go back and forth on, on you know, re- uh, healing sites like lords. Is there anything there that you guys think or yeah, maybe go back and forth a bit on that? I'm I'm familiar with Lords. Even as a Christian, I was never convinced by some of the claims there. It might be a feature of the fundamentalist, potentially anti-Catholic mindset that I had uh, as a as a Christian in those days. But yeah, Lords never really convinced me, even as a Christian. Okay. What about you, Robert? I, I think it was very impressive. In any of these examples, there's, there are going to be some hoaxes, some weak examples, some, you know, throwaway ones, but that doesn't discount the ones that are not like that. And Lords was very impressive to me, partly because it's this evidence exists over like a hundred year period. It has quite a history. And like you said, there's a lot of healings they have actually excluded from officially recognizing for these strange technicalities when they were actually pretty impressive. So they, they have pretty rigorous standards. Yeah, I, I mean, th- just throwing it back to, to Matthew is, I feel like I have, through these citations, pretty substantial data. And I, I guess my question is like, isn't the burden of proof, <laughs> friendly burden of proof, on, <laughs> on the skeptic to then 
deal with that to like like my example with ufos if someone brought this sort of data to me about ufos i wouldn't be dismissive of it i would say wow a hundred million people worldwide claim to be abducted that okay that's a lot more than i thought we all need explanations for the data that's out there so here's the data to me the prima facie answer is god is is that it, or it fits with the christian worldview what is your explanation for this data? Or can you agree that it's uh, on you to either look into it more to debunk it or to say, okay, this is one point to the Christians tentatively, you know, because on the surface, at least it is for them. I think you mentioned Barbara Snyder and also the the Mozambique uh, thing when we were chatting on Twitter the other week. So I've looked a little bit on those. You're a step ahead of me because you've purchased books and read the books which reference those cases the information that I was able to find about those cases online wasn't sufficient for me to to be convinced by them I did read a, a book extract of a of a journalist who was interviewing directly is it Heidi the lady from Mozambique Heidi Baker yes um, yeah so I, I did read an extract of, of a journalist who was directly interviewing her there was lots of claims of this happened and then that happened and it's all well and good having claims but i need more than just the claims of this is what happened i need uh, the the data behind the claims to corroborate the claims so in the little that i've read about those particular cases it's not enough for me to be be convinced well obviously something happened uh, but it's not enough for me to convince that it's it's something that is explained beyond something natural because there just wasn't enough information in what i was able to read uh, in the last couple of weeks about those specific cases. So I don't have enough information to accept that there's something there that needs more investigation. Do you mind if I just ask, just theoretically, so so with the Lord's example, there are four criteria for them to qualify. So this is why they've only accepted 70 miracles out of the, the literally thousands that they've gotten. I think 4,500 or, or cases have been reported. So so number one, there has to be full medical documentation of one's prior condition uh, that has to be provided to the, the medical bureau. So they're the ones that are made up of a bunch of doctors, both Catholic, non-Catholics, and that sort of thing. There has to be contact with multiple eyewitnesses to confirm and collaborate the prior medical condition, as well as details about the person's character. Thirdly, the cure has to be certified to be organic so that there was no medicine or medical technology that could potentially provide a natural cure for the prior condition was used and that the healing itself has to be deemed medically inexplicable by these medical professionals on the Bureau. And then finally, four, the cure must endure or persist over time and they follow up to make sure years afterwards to, to make sure the cure has in fact persisted. So. In principle, do you agree with these? If we had something that fits these criteria and it's not a, a scam or something like that, they really fit it, would that be something that you would consider? Yeah, that seems like a very reasonable set of criteria. Yeah, I'm, I might possibly want to have some kind of, uh, see something about some kind of uh, consultation with the, the original doctor or, or something like that if they're prepared to be involved in that confirmation process. As it stands, that seems like an eminently reasonable uh, set of criteria. And, and yeah. to me, this is where, if you don't mind uh, be jumping in real quick, uh, this is where the full force of the heuristic comes into play. I think skeptics need to be really challenged on what their alternative viewpoint implies. So if those are the criteria the Lord's has, so 
and uh, Matthew was just saying, if you know that's for real, then I, you know, I agree with that. So if it's not for real, then are we saying these people are lying or they're greatly exaggerating? And okay, let's say we accept that. But then are Barbara Snyder's doctors also lying? And then Craig Keener, who is a respected scholar, is he lying? Like you end up, if you really play it through, to me, there are too many hoaxes, too many lies to be epistemologically valid. Yeah, I'm not going to throw out the, oh, it's clearly a hoax or somebody's lying to make money card. I'm, it's, it's very likely that... That, that there is somebody who's, who's pulled a stunt like that to, to make money. I mean, people are greedy. Someone's going to someone's going to do that eventually. Um, but that's not something that I'm. That's not an accusation I'm going to throw out, and certainly not an accusation I'm going to give about something that I've just admitted that I don't have enough information about. So, so I mean, do you think these events are happening, even if you're not sure how to explain them? I don't some. know because it's it's possible for the event not to have happened and it not to be a hoax. I mean, people can be genuinely convinced that, that something's a miracle and, and just be. I'm not um, talking about the explanation. Mi- mis- I'm talking misjudged. about it happening. I'm talking about the condition, organic condition, you know, immediately remitting like uh, blindness. Um, and I'm talking about it, it happening. So do you think these things are actually happening? At least some of them. I, I'm going to again say I don't know because I just don't have the information. But I think the alternative implies something. I I don't think it's a null hypothesis. I think the alternative is you you need an explanation of where these stories come from then. So the alternative explanation is either hoax, great – well, some of these go so so far beyond exaggeration that they would have to be a lie if they didn't happen. So what is that alternative explanation of where this data comes from? I'm going to again say I don't know, and I'll, I'm going to give you an example to demonstrate that. And this is a very specific and very recent example. One of the other podcasts that Premier do, uh, the people behind uh, Unbelievable, is they also do a podcast called The Profile, where they interview a, a high-profile Christian and get information about them. And a couple of episodes back, so we're talking October, November last year, I think, they featured somebody from the States, I think a singer or a church leader or or someone like that. And right in the very opening segment of this piece, they featured him talking about a family of people from his congregation being healed from a brain-eating amoeba. We don't have enough time on this project to tell her whole story. But what we can tell you is that one day, July 4th, she was diagnosed with a brain-eating amoeba with a mortality rate of 97%. And not only did she have it, but they suspected that six of her children had a brain-eating amoeba, and they expected all of them to die within a week. But the church prayed.
first of all, I went and did a search for brain-eating amoeba just to try to find out a bit about what it is that was being described. And it's a colloquial term for, for something else which is in the water in some places in America. And there are circumstances where if water gets forced up your nose in a specific way, this microbe can get into your blood and into your brain and they call it a brain-eating amoeba, and it's almost certain death. It's, I think, of in, in the, like the last 30 or 40 years, less than 200 people in America have been found, have, have contracted it. So it's rare, but of those less than 200 people, about four have survived. So it's, it's very rare, but you really don't want it because it's even more rare that you'll survive it. This clip from this, this family of church, it was a number almost equal to the number that have survived uh, this case. So I thought, okay, well, this ought to stand out. This is a big anomaly. This should stand out. So I started Googling the person's name and uh, the people recovering. And I found several reports all on Christian sites of this recovery. I struggled to find uh, to which city. I, th- I, I think there was some information I struggled to find. I think it was the city. I did find across several Christian websites this story, pretty much the same text throughout each story, telling about this amazing survival of all, of all the members of this family. But I couldn't find where the hospital was, and I couldn't find any medical or newspaper reports that corroborated it. It was all exclusively on Christian online sites. I genuinely couldn't find anything elsewhere. So I don't believe that that's what they had and, and that's w- what happened uh, because, uh, because of what I've just outlined. So your, uh, your question is obviously, well, what is my explanation? I don't know is, is my honest answer. I, I don't know what the true explanation is. I don't know what they had. I don't know if they were in hospital. I don't know what their motivation is. It could be that they genuinely misunderstood what was going on and think that that's what they had and are, are telling that story because that's what they believe. Or there could be something more nefarious. But I genuinely don't have enough information to be able to make a judgment on their motives for telling this story. All I know is I don't believe that the story is true. So uh, I don't I'll know use why. This to, sure. So I'll, I'll use this to wrap up on my side, Dale, I know we're hitting time. So my response to that, and I of course appreciate the, the humble epistemology of saying, I don't know, I don't want to ever dismiss a, uh, a humble epistemology by any means. But my response to that is, the I don't know can kind of mean one of two things. It can either mean you're using that example of like the story that didn't pan out and you're applying that to this wide swath of data. And if that's so, I don't think you're really coming to terms with what that actually means because that means Craig Keener has to either be a lying academic or severely deceived and all these other people because they don't really apply to someone like Barbara, where you couldn't have misunderstood you had multiple sclerosis, for instance. So I I think the full implications of applying that pattern to all of these would make too many people deceived or liars. And if, if you're not doing that, and if you're bringing it in even further and just saying, no, I truly don't know, I don't want to even apply that, then I think there's a gap in the skeptical worldview where these things maybe are happening and it's prima facie evidence for Christianity. So I will I will leave it there. Point taken. And f- certainly for me specifically as an individual, and the cases that, that Craig Keener would bring up in his book and the MS case that you've done, it is also that I genuinely don't have enough information about those cases. And I outlined earlier that what I tried to read about them didn't give me enough information to 
to go okay yeah I, I can accept that there's something strange here even if I'm not prepared yet to to go miracle me as an individual I definitely need more technical information in order to be able to make the step on any of those cases whether or not somebody else has that information and access to that information is another question so I'm not saying that my lack of information means they also don't have that information so okay yeah I'm, I'm, I'm accepting that somebody else might have that information I just haven't been able to find the information to get me as an individual over that line in terms of that being prima facie evidence for Christianity I, I want to push back on that because again me as an individual I haven't been able to find it and it could be because I'm not well read enough or it could mean I don't have the right scientific knowledge I mean there, there could be multiple reasons for me just not having the right information but just because I don't have access to the information to do it or to put it another way Christianity hasn't been able to provide me with the information in order to get me over the line that isn't a side door into confirming Christianity it just means Christianity hasn't been able to provide me with that information so I want to push back a little bit on that your your ending point on mm -hmm. uh, the inability to re-explain means that Christianity must be true because that, that falls back to the some of the things we made right at the very beginning of this and just to be clear I'm not saying it means Christianity is true I'm just saying it's one point on the Christian side and you would have to take in a lot of other stuff to build a cumulative case but okay uh, yeah well, fair yeah. enough Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, that was a, a great discussion. Um, I hope both of you guys enjoyed enjoyed it on your end. Do, do you feel that you got to say everything that you wanted to say on the topics that were important to both of you? Yeah. Yeah. I um, I I love this discussion, guys. Um, I feel like we moved along quite quickly. I'm not sure we got really stuck anywhere, which is quite remarkable given the topic and the diverse viewpoints here. So I'm going to just give a round of applause to us because <laughs> it was well, yeah. it's, it's not easy to do that when you've heard a lot of these debates before. So thanks guys so much for being a part of this. And this was really fun to be. Awesome. I, I'll echo that. It's been a pleasure that it's been of the manner as it, that it has been. It's, it makes me feel so much better than other conversations that I've been involved in. So thank you both. In terms of how I feel about what's been said, I, I've said what I can, uh, on on the conversation you know i'm i feel that robert and i could probably talk through these things for for quite a bit longer my only frustration is i don't have enough technical knowledge to be able to address specifics that, that robert would probably like me to to address um i if, if you know, I... trying to meet that might be a challenge but um that that would be my only frustration cool so yeah so thank you thank you so much to you guys i've really enjoyed this conversation i i think we've put out some substantive points for, for people to consider on both sides. There's a couple of final thoughts I'd like to add to what you've just heard. I don't think the numbers are in favour of Christianity with regards to miracles. Yes, Christianity very probably does have the monopoly on miracle claims. However, as you've just heard in this episode, the validity of those claims is questionable. In some, it's because there is critical missing knowledge in others, it is clear that the claim of miracle is false. I think the problem that Christians have is that some sections of Christianity believe in a God that performs miracles, and so they were predisposed to believing miracles. This makes some individuals too credulous when it comes to discussing a specific miracle claim. I've been there myself. I once believed in a God that does miracles, and so when someone would tell a story which included a miracle, I believed the miracle happened. It wasn't until I started to become more sceptical in my outlook that I started to question claims of miracles. 
This is what I see as part of the problem with this conversation, and this implies to Keener and his Book of Miracles too. Christians will believe a miracle claim too easily because they are primed to do so by the existing belief in a God that performs miracles. Also in this episode there was discussion of burden of proof. This is problematic for Christians, and Dale specifically has fallen over with this. You didn't hear it in this episode, but in forum interactions with Dale, he has confidently proclaimed Christian claims to be true, because the sceptic has failed to prove an alternative explanation. This is bogus and dishonest. The Christian needs to support their claim, and when insufficiencies in that explanation are pointed out, that is the basis for rejecting that claim. When I do that, I do not have any burden to provide an alternative explanation. As I stated in this conversation, if I don't have enough information to explain what happened, then it is not reasonable for me to posit any explanation of my own. All that is needed to deny any Christian claim of a miracle is to point out where there is missing information. One area that can be applied across the board is the inability to show how the Christian God works to perform these miracles. This is also another area where Dale and I have clashed outside of this podcast. Dale has quoted the Bible stating that God is not a God to be tested, which runs contrary to using events like alleged healing miracles to confirm that Christianity is true. He wants miracles to prove Christianity but will reject skeptics' requests to put miracles in a controlled environment in order to test for the Christian God. I'm glad that this didn't come up as an issue during the conversation, but it is something that has come up elsewhere when trying to discuss miracles. Finally, as a reminder, there are links to the subjects discussed in the show notes, including links to Dale's and Robert's edits of this conversation, which will include the sections that I have trimmed out.